You're listening to Bodyful, a podcast that explores the wonder and complexities of living in this human form and how we can engage in an ongoing practice of bodyfulness to become more fully at home in ourselves and in the interconnected web of Gaia, the living earth. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and I'm the founder of the Gaia Center for Embodied Healing, where we support folks in their growth and healing work with somatic psychotherapy and embodiment practices. We hear all the time about the importance of being mindful, and it's time to invite our bodies to the party. Welcome to Bodyful. Hello, friends. Thank you for being here for this episode of Bodyful. I can't wait to share the guests with you today. Uh, but before we jump into that, just a few little updates from my corner of the world here. Um, super excited to share that I am going to be teaching a weekly restorative class. So for those of y'all who are in the Nashville area, um, Sanctuary for Yoga is moving from their uh, former home in Green Hills to a new studio that is less than a half a mile from my new office. So Sanctuary was my first uh, yoga home in Nashville. It's where I did my 200-hour teacher training and then went on to Inner Light, which uh, where I was at for three years until they COVID closed. So now I've only been teaching a little bit virtually and for Triluna in their sort of pop-up events and um, things like that. So this will be my first studio experience since Inner Light closed and um, coming back to my sort of yoga roots feels very serendipitous at this point in my life and I'm really excited about some of the things that Sanctuary has going on so that is really exciting for me if you happen to be around um, in this area then check out our schedule for that weekend of December 3rd through 5th is going to be published any day now Um, by the time you hear this it's probably already out there Um, and that will show you all the classes that are free Uh, that whole weekend to kind of celebrate the opening of the new studio. And yeah, very excited about that. Otherwise, um, make sure to stay in the loop with what we have going on at the Gaia Center. Um, You can sign up for our monthly newsletter at bit.ly slash the Gaia Center news, or just head to our website, gaiacenter.co, and you can uh, find our newsletter there, find all the things that we are up to and offering and um yeah it's been a really lovely start to the fall overall um my broken toe is healing so that's good and yeah let's jump into the guest for today which again i cannot contain my excitement let me just tell you a little bit about dr daltry dot um i've known daltry at least since eighth grade I think seventh grade possibly even before that um I can't remember exactly when we met but we've been friends since middle school um we would you know take the jelly roll pins out and spend like half an hour covering the entire tops of our hands in these pens with like the number of days of school that were left or the initials of our crush one time in in history class we 
had a perfume war wherein we took our Victoria's Secret body sprays and just sprayed them in each other all throughout whatever stupid video we were watching. And I can't imagine how much that room just absolutely reeked <laughs> of love spell and passion, whatever the hell. Um, it, yeah, we just had a blast. Then we ended up both going to the University of Texas for undergrad. We roomed together freshman year. We did things like one time we were elevator fairies and <laughs> we chaperoned all the people in our dorm going up and down the elevator. And this is when like iPods and Bluetooth speakers or not even Bluetooth, but like speakers you could connect to your iPod were like brand new. And I was like hiding it and people were like, where's this music coming from? How's this happening? Um, yeah, we had a great time in college. Lost touch a little bit when she went to med school in Galveston and then reconnected when we both ended up for different reasons around the same time in 2012 in Nashville, where she came to do her residency at Vanderbilt. And I was coming here originally for four months and was going to go right back home. And 10 years later, here I am still. Daltrey moved back to Texas a few years ago, moved to the Dallas area um, where she practices anesthesiology there. And let me read a little bit from her fancy bio. The rest of this you can you can read on the show notes um, over at our website, GaiaCenter.co on the blog. Daltry.md, CHCQM. I had to look this up. I think it is some kind of healthcare management certification. <laughs> she is an assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Management at UT Southwestern Medical Center, specializing in cr complex chronic pain management and utilizes a multidisciplinary approach to help individualize treatment plans and provide comprehensive and compassionate care to each patient. So um, fast forwarding a little bit through her, her background, how she got to where she is, because you'll hear some of that in the conversation. She was chief resident during her final year in her medical residency, aka, this is my words, not hers. She's kind of a big deal, y'all. <laughs> um, and Daltrey is certified by the American Board of Anesthesiology in both anesthesiology and pain medicine. And I just have to read this part because these words, you guys, I can't. Um, she's also certified by the National Board of Echocardiography and Basic Perioperative Transesophageal trans Echocardiography. <laughs> okay, enough of that. But she was also included in D Magazine's Best Doctors in Collin County list for 2021. She is an incredible person. She crafts everything like if... I can't even with all the things that she has crafted in her life, all the craft supplies that she owns. Um, she cycles. She is a dog mom. She is just an incredible, well-rounded, hilarious, dry humor human being um, and a wonderful friend. And um yeah, I think that's all that I have. Oh, why do I want to talk about why do why are we talking to Daltrey today? We're talking to Daltrey because or Dr. Dot, excuse me, because chronic pain and pain in general is something that very much impacts our experiences of being in these flesh sacks, these human bodies, and pain is such a strange phenomenon that impacts all of us to varying degrees and impacts some people a whole hell of a lot. So 
Um, I was really curious to get Daltrey's sort of expert opinion. She's worked with a lot of people um, suffering from a lot of different kinds of pain, including chronic pain, which is, as we'll discuss, still a bit of a mystery in the medical community. So um, talking with Daltrey, and then I'm also going to do an episode soon with someone who lives with chronic pain. So we can kind of get both sides of that experience. One important note is that while Dr. Dot and I are talking about some um, effective ways of managing pain, obviously everyone's experience is different. So please do not consider this medical advice or psychotherapy. Talk with your medical provider or psychotherapist for more about what might help in your individual situation. All right, without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Daltrey Dot. Oh my goodness, I am nervous, <laughs> which is hilarious because I have known you for 20, over That's 20 something. years now. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, how freaking cool. So yes, in the intro, I will, I will share some of our ridiculous stories. Um, some of those may come up <laughs> in this conversation, but, but you know, you are also this incredible professional, um, Dr. Daltrey Dot. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm really excited for this conversation. I feel like a lot of it is going to be like, me asking kind of um, dumb questions, but in service of like just getting to the foundation of this very human experience that impacts all of us to some extent um, and really impacts some people. So before we jump into all of that and learn a little bit more about you, let's take a moment to slow down and drop in. So as always, for anyone listening, um, you're welcome to join us if you're in a place where you can close your eyes or, or soften your gaze. If you're driving, just listen along and uh, be present. So either eyes closed or softening your gaze and just noticing the natural rhythm of your breath, the surface supporting you, holding you up. Noticing the space inside the nose and throat as you breathe in and out naturally. And just becoming aware of what's present today in this moment. Physically, if there's any spots that are tight, tense, any other sensations Any places you might invite to release a little bit. Noticing any thoughts that are arising. Noticing what's on your heart. And just taking one more full breath, 
honoring whatever is showing up today, making room for it. When you're ready, blinking the eyes open. And what did you notice today? Um, I felt kind of an inner sense of calm and letting go, just kind of releasing from the outside stressors. Yes. Yeah. It's like, I know it sounds oversimplistic, but it's like, regardless of what, you know, shit storm may be going on in life. It's like when we just pause and check in with our breath and it's like, in this moment, I am okay. Yep. No matter what else is going on. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, awesome. So tell us about what brought you to this career. Like I literally, even though we grew up together and went to undergrad together, I'm like, I don't know that I've ever asked you why you wanted to be a doctor, Yeah, which is hilarious. So like, I know your dad's uh, a doctor as well, but what led you to this career path? So it actually wasn't ever a path I really... I don't know, I saw myself on. Um, growing up, you know, my dad was a doctor. I didn't necessarily want to emulate his life. Um, he was uh, not there a lot because he was working mm. so much. Um, so he was really working to provide for our family um, and wasn't there physically a lot. <clears throat> um, so I didn't really see it as a career path that I per- wanted to partake um, in particular. Um, but once I got into undergrad, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I always liked science and, um, I like kind of all the thinking that goes along with that, um, side of like that kind of mindset. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I took a lot of science classes. I was undeclared for quite a while. Um, I really liked psychology and that's what my major was actually in. Um, but then I was like, I don't really know what else to do. So I shadowed my dad, um, and worked for him for a summer and I really enjoyed, you know, that environment and the people and all of the different aspects it, um, entailed, like working with people, using knowledge, using science, kind of using all of those different factors and bringing them all together to do whatever your part of the job was. Um, and so that's kind of where I started with my interest in medicine. Um, and then once I got into medical school, I really um, wanted to do surgery. And so all of my mm. kind of training and I did a lot of different things to gear my um, applications for residency, which is the postgraduate training, towards doing um, ear, nose, and throat surgery. Uh, but I did an anesthesia rotation as kind of a last minute blow off kind of rotation elective <laughs> during my um, rotation, clinical rotations. And I really loved it. It was a lot of fun. And I spent more time at the hospital doing things than I had pretty much on almost any other rotation, but I enjoyed myself more than I had all year. So <laughs> in my mind, you should always do things that you like. Um, because if no matter what it is that if you enjoy it, you're going to excel. Um, you'll you'll find a way to do well. And so forcing yourself into something you think that you'll be good at or you think that other people will be happy with you doing or you think that you'll like 
isn't going to give you the same result as actually doing something that you really do enjoy. And so mm -hmm. I actually changed my entire application for residency um, based on that rotation and um, then went into anesthesia. When I was in residency, um, <clears throat> which is a four-year training after four years of medical school, um, I thought I was going to do like critical care or um, cardiothoracic anesthesia. Mm. Um, and I didn't really see pain management as like something I was super interested in. But over my four years, I really realized that one of the things I missed um, was feeling like a doctor. Like when you're an anesthesiologist, mm -hmm. you see a patient for surgery, and then you may or may not, usually not, see them ever again. So you'd ever see kind of the results of what you did and how people are doing on the other side. And I really missed building that relationship with patients. Um, and pain management gave me that aspect of um, feeling like a doctor, seeing seeing patients and building a, re uh, a relationship with them, um, seeing how what we were doing and working on together affected them and what they were able to do after you know we implemented different types of treatments. Um, and another thing with pain management that I really enjoy is that a lot of doctors don't know how to treat pain. Pain is the mm -hmm. number one reason that people go to the doctor, and there is no formal treat uh, like education in pretty much any training program in medical school that really teaches doctors yeah. or future doctors how to treat pain um, hmm. adequately. A lot of it focuses on quick treatments um, for acute pain, which is one aspect of pain, but most doctors don't know how to treat chronic pain. So the um, kind of ways that I can help people are a little bit different than a lot, the ways that a lot of other doctors have been trained. And so that gives me a lot of, um, that's one thing that drew me to the field is being able to help people when most people aren't educated in that aspect. Right. And I imagine that like having to do that additional training and specialty in chronic pain, like it's just, I'm sure there's, a, there's still a lot that obviously your foundational experience and education was helpful for, but it's just so different than like being able to skillfully, safely put someone under anesthesia for a surgery, like that kind of pain management versus like in someone's day-to-day -day life when they're not going to be hooked up to something or under any kind of, you know, that type of anesthesia, um, managing pain is a completely different story. And yeah, yeah, it's like, even among anesthesiologists, like what percentage of people are trained in how to manage that more day-to-day -day or chronic pain? I imagine like probably not most of them. No, pretty much none. Um, and then even just like primary care doctors, like they really don't know much more than, um, I, I, there are some that do a really great job and do have a lot more education, but a vast majority don't know all of the aspects of chronic pain treatment and what that really entails. And um, it's really, I think, an unfortunate thing that we don't educate our doctors or future doctors on the treatment options and what we can do to help people manage their pain on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, you know, we can train people how to do heart surgery or do these specific types of procedures or treat these specific illnesses. But then there's this, this sort of like looming 
thing of pain and like, what is the protocol for that? How do we treat it? Um, it seems like the field is still really um, trying to figure that out as, as much as medicine has advanced in like the last hundred years. Yeah. And I think, I think part of the problem is that, you know, the name chronic pain doctor carries mm. a really big stigma with it. Um, you yeah. know, there were, there were some really big issues with um, opioids and prescribing habits that um, kind of throw us into the opioid epidemic. Um, and that if you hear the name chronic pain doctor, people think, oh, you're just going to mm -hmm. give me opiates or you're only going to treat me with pain medications or you're going to get me addicted to these like terrible mm -hmm. things. And I think that's a really um, false uh, stigma that is out there. Um, and there are some doctors, there are some doctors, I'm sure, who that is their thing. But sure. a, if you find the right pain doctor, that is not going to be the biggest um, treatment option that won't that should not ever be your only treatment option there should be quite a few different options kind of depending on where you are in your path but there should pretty much always be at least another option right and as far as like opiates go i mean i know there is so much controversy even within the medical field and people who feel very differently about it but i mean I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or tell me what you think, but like that there has to be a place for that kind of treatment option that for some people, maybe just their quality of life is with the level or kind of pain they're experiencing. And maybe there's just not, not a lot of great ways to, to treat it otherwise or get to the root, uh, root cause that maybe it is an appropriate treatment option for a, to a certain extent or for a certain duration of time. But I wonder, like, would you agree with that? And would you say that, like, is is it the kind of thing, are opiates ever appropriate for long-term use? Or is it like after a certain point, do you really have to be kind of taking breaks from them or using other approaches? So based on, like, the evidence and the research that's out there, there's really um, – opiates have a place for acute pain. So pain that has mm -hmm. been short-lived or less than four to six months in duration. After that four to six months in duration, the, really what happens is your body changes. So acute pain is where your body is telling you something is wrong, there is something being damaged or hurt, or you need mm -hmm. to avoid something. Um, chronic pain is kind of a different mechanism. And what happens after that four to six months is that the nerves start releasing those signals that relay pain and they're releasing chemicals that relay those messages to your brain. And then those nerves also are making contact with other nerves that are nearby. So let's say you hurt your knee and you have pain for a few months. Your body's telling you you've got some type of damage going on there but once it gets to that four to six months at your knee, those nerves are contacting other nearby nerves. When those nerves go into mm -hmm. your spine, they are making contact with other nearby nerves in your spinal cord. And then whenever they go up to your brain, they're making contact with other nearby nerves in your brain, which they shouldn't be making contact with. So mm -hmm. these pain nerves are sending these pain signals and then making contact with other nerves that are nearby in multiple different places causing them to send pain signals as well. And it just kind of perpetuates this uh, yeah. pain signal. So there's no longer any necessarily tissue damage or biologic reason mm -hmm. for you to continue to have pain. 
the acute pain, there's definitely a place for opioids, especially if you, let's say you break your arm or you have surgery. Um, opioids mm -hmm. are really good at controlling that pain and getting you over that really terrible pain hump. Um, but once you get to chronic pain, the evidence and research shows that there's really no benefit. And do some mm -hmm. people continue to do well and function well while they are taking opioids? Yes. Um, some people do do really well and can maintain um, functionality on low doses of opioids. But what we see very commonly is that people build a tolerance, meaning they get used to mm. that medication and they need more uh, to achieve the same effect. And so what happens is that over time, people need more medication, they get more side effects. There's actually something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And basically, that's a mm. fancy name to say that being on opioids actually increases your sensitivity to pain. So there's actually evidence out there that people who are on opiates for long periods of time actually experience more pain than people who are not. So it's kind of a hard um, topic because do some people do really well and function better on lower doses of opioids long-term? Yes. Um, but is it a good option for most people? Maybe, maybe not. It just mm -hmm. really depends on the person. Um, and there are a lot of other aspects that go along with opioids, both short and long-term um, risks and side effects. You know, I there the risks aren't just to, to you. Um, if you have medications in your cabinet and you have someone come over and do some work on your house for whatever reason, those opiates may disappear. Um, if you have children in the household, there are risks to mm -hmm. those kids. Um, they can get into those and then have addiction down the line because the research has shown if there are children who are using opiates before the age of 18, they're much, much mm -hmm. higher risk of becoming addicted in the future. Not only are there like addiction risks, um, but overdose. So if right. you're mixing opiates with alcohol, other sedating medications, things like sleep aids, um, benzodiazepines, which are anxiety type medications, um, mm -hmm. a lot of other medications can have those same type of sedating effects that opioids can. And when you're mixing those things, put you at much higher risk of overdose. And then also if kids get into it, the dose that they need to overdose is much lower than what an adult may need to overdose. So it's just, you know, you have to really weigh the risks and the benefits of um, the medication, just like any other mm -hmm. medication. Um, but I think it's, it's a hard question to ask and everybody is a little bit different on what's going to be best for them. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And so it's like, if they're the, acute pain is maybe coming from things that are still actively happening in the tissue, like the tissues repairing from a surgery or something, then it could be effective. And then when that, you know, tissue has healed, hopefully the pain is gone. But then in, in cases where for whatever reason it, it becomes chronic, um, what are some of the other options that work? I, I know that in the past, even, um, when I was dealing with back pain and I was asking you like, is there, is this like whole chiropractor thing? Like, is this legit? Is this snake oil? Like there are so many things like just, especially in this, uh, 
wellness industrial complex, if you will, everything that is sort of purporting to be um, a way to sort of like, quote, holistically manage pain or whatever is trying to be sold service wise or product wise. Um, so maybe help us understand a little bit about like what which of those options are pretty legit and maybe evidence based. And are, are there any that maybe aren't so legit that people may want to be uh, wary of? Um, okay, so that's a big topic. So that's <laughs> big a question, yes. Um, <laughs> so there are quite a few different things that different options that you can kind of explore as far as um, generalities, kind of the treatments that I usually um, am, uh, use. Um, fall into a few different categories. But usually using a multimodal approach, so meaning doing a few different things all at the same time, is going to give you the best results. So um, usually one thing in isolation is not going to give you the, the same results as doing a couple of different things at the same time. Um, so a few different things that people can do or things that are out there that people do do um, are kind of um, the first one would be like exercise programs and things along those lines. So physical mm -hmm. therapy, sometimes people lump chiropractic treatments into that as well, but physical therapy, home exercise programs, yoga, um, tai chi, those can be really good um, <clears throat> programs to do some strengthening exercises, um, mm -hmm. also help you recenter and focus on, you know, what is going right in your body, not just what is going wrong and yeah, what, um, what is... That painful. Um, the, the biggest difference that is between kind of physical therapy and those um, yoga, tai chi, those kinds of activities and chiropractic is that yoga, tai chi, physical therapy, exercise programs are usually very active treatments. You yourself are doing mm -hmm. the physical activity um, and actively doing something to strengthen or stretch or change your body. Whereas chiropractic treatments are more involved with passive therapies, meaning they're doing something to you, but you're not actively participating in that. Um, and the some of those things can feel really good, massage, chiropractic treatment, some can feel really good, and they're not necessarily bad, but how much are they actually mm -hmm. helping you? It can be somewhat questionable, um, unless it's really addressing yeah. the underlying issue. Now, if you are if you have myofascial pain and you have you need the myofascial muscles and tendons and mm -hmm. all of that kind of released, massage can be a really good thing. Even just human contact can be good. You know that can make you feel mm -hmm. really good. Um, but how much are they getting to the underlying issue? If that's not your issue, it's a little questionable. Um, yeah. For the most part, I do not recommend. Um, adjustments, chiropractic adjustments, mm. especially of the neck. Um, there are a lot of different things that can happen. There are some pretty significant risks involved with that. Um, you know, a lot of people do them and that is definitely their own choice. Um, but I typically mm -hmm. don't recommend that people partake in those. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I hated when I did try chiropractic for a period of time. Um, and it was like, I don't know. I, I, I just, I feel like I'm always straddling this line of like, uh, wanting to be open to a variety of things because, you know, the Western medical model and all of that, like I know is not the be all end all. And yet I am very skeptical. And so, and I also know that some things 
part of the benefit comes from that sort of placebo effect. And I'm like, is this even going to work if I'm skeptical of it? So it's, yeah. it's challenging, but I did not like the neck adjustments and it, you know, probably won't ever do that again. It, it definitely, even with folks who maybe have done it successfully with hundreds or thousands of patients and not really had issues, it's scary. And like, even as a yoga teacher, I know plenty of yoga teachers who will teach, you know, inversions, um, like headstand, handstand, that even shoulder stand. And I am always super, like, I usually give different options and most of the options that I will give will not put pressure on the cervical spine because I'm just like, why, just why do we need to tempt fate in that way? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And a lot of what I do see is neck or neck issues. And like, Mm. There, there are a lot of things in your neck. If you just think about like mm-hmm. things that have to travel from your heart and your lungs up to your brain, like very important structures and a very small amount of space. So mm-hmm. just my opinion is just don't mess with it. Um, Be careful. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the kind of those active treatments or um, therapies of trying mm-hmm. to get active, move your body, like we talked yeah. about. Um, a lot of people with chronic pain have this fear of movement. So they say they mm. think it hurts. And so I shouldn't move. I shouldn't do anything because it makes my pain worse. But really, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not moving because it makes you weaker. It makes things tighter. It makes you hurt more when you do try to move. So actually encouraging people to move and do something, some type of activity, is actually can be really good for their body and really good for their mindset. Just being able to know like, hey, I can do this and I can move the, this part of my body or I can do this with my body and it makes me feel good um, can be have a really mm-hmm. positive effect too. Um, other treatment options would be like medications. So from a Western type of side, there's a whole bunch of pharmacological med- medications that are out there that can be used to treat pain. Um, there are also a lot of treatment options that people seek um, that are not necessarily um, pharmacologic uh, things that a, a, a physician may prescribe, um, but mm-hmm. things like CBD, uh, very, very commonly used. I see it used yeah. all of the time. Um, does it help? My experience is yeah. maybe one in every seven to one in every 10 people who I ask um, tells me that it's helpful. Plus now can compare that to placebo right. effect. Placebo effect is one in three. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're not even at placebo effect. So does it work? I don't know. For the people who say it works, they they swear by it. And so if you right. know that one in seven to one in 10, um, then that is great. Um, but at the same time, should I, Have do you I recommend had many it? patients... Right. Have you had many use acupuncture and, and is it, does it match placebo level? Um, yes. So acupuncture can actually be really helpful for a lot of different type of pain. Um, and so there is actually a lot of evidence out there for acupuncture mm. um, and treatments for different kinds of pain. One of the most common things is headaches that can be treated with acupuncture. Um, yeah. And headaches can be crippling, um, just like any type of pain, but headaches can be crippling because, you know, it can affect your vision and your hearing and um, just being able to focus. So um, acupuncture can be really helpful for that, as well as a bunch of different other types of pain, sacroiliitis, musculoskeletal pain, a lot of different things. Yeah. Well, I know you're not obviously an acupuncturist, but do you, have you read enough about all of that to know, like, 
What are they saying that the mechanism of action is in that? So nobody really knows um, exactly. <laughs> like like you said, I'm not trained in acupuncture, so I can't talk a lot yeah. about it. But um, nobody really knows exactly the mechanism. Um, but that's also, I think, a lot of chronic pain. Like there's a lot right. that we don't know about chronic pain. There's a lot of research mm-hmm. going into it right now because we don't know a lot about it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, a lot of it is kind of figuring out what works best for people. There's no right or mm-hmm. wrong answer or right combination or one combination that works best for everyone. Right. Yeah. I recently read this really fascinating Atlantic article. I'll put it in the show notes um, that I can't remember the exact title, but it was something to the effect of like, Reiki shouldn't work and yet it does. Why? You know, and it talks about even people who've who've brought Reiki into like the VA and and other hospital settings and like that when, you know, whether it is that sort of human to human contact, some of the hypothesis I think that they're talking about in the article was almost like, I mean, it sounds like really out there, but just almost this idea of there is a human being who is sent actively sending love and compassion toward you in close proximity, touching you or not. And like that has some benefit and that like yeah. blows my mind. And, uh, you know, even though I am on that skeptical side of any of that kind of woo stuff right now, um, it's pretty, pretty freaking cool to think about. Well, I think that gets to the basis of like, uh, we need human connection. Um, and yeah. we have to be able Skin to connect with other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like even just having someone feel like they, um, are caring for your well-being or like someone touching you mm-hmm. in a therapeutic way is can be mm-hmm. really helpful. I think people underestimate that. Um, but that's another way that like chiropractic treatments, massage, those kinds of things can be helpful again too. Just having someone else yeah. touch you and make you feel good. Um, it can be really helpful. Um, yeah. mm. Other treatment things that we do. So psychological treatments. So that would be, yes. um, usually I recommend cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, meditation. Um, those mm-hmm. kinds of things can be really, really helpful for people. Um, the pain nerves and emotion nerves. So depression, anxiety, stress, sleep are all super important at making sure that you are um, treating any issues that may affect your sleep or may affect your mood or may affect pretty much any kind of psychological well-being that you have. Um, but the pain nerves and those other nerves go to the same place in your brain called the thalamus. So mm. most people who've had pretty severe pain can say, you know, when I get when I have really bad pain, I can get really upset and angry or really stressed out or it affects my sleep or mood. Um, And the same thing goes the opposite way. So if you're really depressed or sad, your pain is way worse. And so making sure that you're treating any of those other issues that may be affecting your pain or how your pain is affecting those other issues is really important. Yeah, absolutely. They are so intertwined. And even with that, like, I think sometimes, you know, people might hear that or especially like the delivery is so important. I feel like if somebody has pain and they're seeing like their primary care provider, or even they're seeing someone like you who specializes in managing chronic pain, like 
you know, to, to couch it in a way where it's like, yes, your pain is very real. And when I'm suggesting that you work on also, in addition to whatever sort of physiological, bio, biological mechanisms we may, you know, be working with, let's also look at the psychological side of it and, and develop some skills there. Um, that obviously, if that's not said in the right way, it could very much give that message of like, oh, your pain is just in your head. Like, go, f- you know, fix your fix your crazy, and then you won't feel this pain anymore, right? So, right. I'm sure you've had patients who have had unfortunate experiences with past medical providers, and I wonder, just yeah, like what, how, what is the way that you might sort of couch the benefit of, um of doing more of that psychological work uh, in a way that's also validating of the pain. Yeah. And that, that can be, the delivery can be extremely difficult. And even if you deliver it in a really um, trying to be a really caring kind of way, um, people can still misinterpret that as like you said, like you were saying, Hey, it's all in your head and you know, you just need to fix your, your brain issues and then your pain will go away, which is not really Mm -hmm. what is, is the message that's trying to be expressed. Yeah. Um, I try to relate to people and I'll say, Hey, have you ever noticed when your pain gets really bad that your heart starts racing or like your mind goes to a not good place or you start breathing really fast or you start sweating and all everything just seems Mm -hmm. to get really amped up and you just get really tense. And I don't think I've ever had a person say, no, like I, I don't have any of those things happen. And so um, I try to relate to them and say, hey, have you ever experienced this? And what is your experience with this? Do you notice that when your pain gets really bad, all of these other things are affected as well? And once they say, yes, mm-hmm. I do, I try to explain to them you know, that they, there, is a, there is a physiologic reason that that happens and that those nerves are making contact with other nerves that cause everything to get amplified. And one of the ways to kind of break that pattern is to break that connection between those nerves, because the more that it happens, the stronger that connection becomes. And so what fires together, wires together. Yep, exactly. And (laughs) then by breaking that pattern, you can try to help cope with the the pain in a different kind of way. Um, Mm -hmm. Even if you try to do it that way, sometimes people don't take it um, as kindly. Sure. um, I think when people can relate and say, you know what, that does happen to me, or I do have some of those things happen, um, then they're more open um, to understanding what you're trying to say to them. But also, it's part of that relationship that I was talking about. If you have sure. a good relationship with people, you're able to kind of talk to them about sensitive issues a little bit more. Um if you don't have a great relationship with them, they might not be quite as open. And I think that's one of the challenges in medicine today is like being able to really connect with a person um, in a limited amount of time and get mm-hmm. get their trust and get them to understand that really you are trying to look out for their best interest and, and trying to give them options so that they can figure out what the best way for them to manage their their problems is for them. Right. Right. And a lot of it, I do feel like, is building awareness and attention skills, mm-hmm. which is not something that we just inherently know how to do, especially in a culture that is like hyperstimulation all over the place and just always, always connecting with something, you know, the compulsive, like picking up the phone or whatever it is. Like, mm-hmm. we're just, 
we, we don't live in a culture that really helps us, um, pay attention skillfully. And in a future episode, just to briefly plug, I mean, I have on, um, a woman who runs a biofeedback center and along with her, her now late husband, um, developed this whole model of open focus attention training, which has been very effective with a lot of their pain, um, patients and, and just helping us to learn it's not just what we pay attention to, but how. And when yeah. we get so, it's like we just unintentionally get so focused on, as you were saying, like what's wrong with the body. And the more that we sort of shine the spotlight on that, not surprisingly, like that's going to be at the forefront of our awareness. Mm-hmm. So how can we sort of learn to zoom out and, you know, have that global awareness and be able to notice, um, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, our non-toothache you know, or notice that like, there's at least some place in my body where I feel more resourced or where there's maybe even an absence of pain in that one small part. And what's it like for me to, whether it shift my awareness there or just open my awareness more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much room to build skills in that area that I think could be very, very helpful for this. And I'm, although I've not worked with a lot of chronic pain, clients and my therapy practice. It's something I'm becoming more and more interested in. And as you know, it's even for people who are not showing up with that issue as their sort of presenting problem, um, I do see it come in and I want to continue building my knowledge and skills in that area too. Yeah. And I think you, I think you touched on something that was really important. So, you know, we're, we're overstimulated. Our sympathetic nervous systems in our current culture Mm. are super overactivated. Um, and we are so just used to it that we don't even notice it. Um, it's just our baseline that our sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight or flight response, um, is completely overactivated compared to our ancestors. Um, you know, even, even just like 50 to a hundred years ago. Um, and one thing that's consistently been shown in a lot of different problems like chronic pain and a lot of kind of anxiety, depression, all of those kinds of issues is that the sympathetic nervous system is overactivated. And we don't Mm -hmm. have a lot in our current culture or society that really focuses on your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the opposite, your rest and digest um, system that kind of calms everything down and kind of recenters everything and kind of takes all that everything that's amped up and kind of re re um, adjust it. And so I think mm-hmm. finding those strategies that really focus on balancing out the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous systems are really important. And they really don't achieve, um, receive enough attention these days. Right, exactly. And like, that's a part of what makes things like yoga and Tai Chi effective is like, not Mm -hmm. only are you sort of, you know, moving the body and bringing in some um, maybe release of patterns of holding that exacerbate pain, but also hopefully they're activating that brake pedal of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so it's like all those things that are sort of happening behind the scenes. We're not necessarily conscious. We're not going, Oh good. I can feel my parasympathetic nervous system being activated. But you know, when we show up and we just try these things, like often we find that they're effective because all those things are happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why exercise like makes you feel good. It, it releases your endorphins and those, Mm -hmm. um, feel good chemicals. So like any kind of movement exercise that can, and that, 
helps activate your parasympathetic nervous system too. Yes. And also, uh, even things like orgasm, you know, releasing those kinds of feel good chemicals. Like I literally had a client who was like, nah, I don't want to, I'm not interested right now. I'm in a lot of pain. And then she like, kind of, she's like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to see how it goes. And she, and I was like, how was your pain after? She's like, it was gone. <laughs> yeah. Like surprisingly, so, you know, when you give yourself feel good uh, chemicals, regardless of how you get yes. them, your, your body's pretty good at um, producing the things that it needs. Right. Right. And are there things that you, because I imagine that, you know, many of your, your patients, you, you're recommending that sort of multidisciplinary approach. And maybe at times, you know, that they're um, in therapy, or maybe even have contact with some of their clinicians. Um, are there things you wish more therapists understood about pain or about chronic pain? Um, I think the biggest thing is what we've touched on a little bit, but understanding that it is not that there's necessarily ongoing tissue damage going on, that movement and um, activity are not, are there are no restrictions necessarily. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are going to be restrictions based on the underlying condition, but for the most part, it's whatever you can do, go ahead and do that. If you can walk, even if it's just for a block, that activity should be highly encouraged. Um, yeah. Laying in bed all day, not doing activity, not getting outside is not ever, I don't think I've ever recommended that. So mm -hmm. making sure that people are understanding that they should be doing the activities that they can be doing. Even if it's a only, a only a little bit, they should still do as much as they can and then work up. And I think a lot of what people... I think a lot of the problem that people have and I think could really benefit with um, their therapist is, you know, encouragement on increasing that activity. So a lot of us have mm -hmm. really high expectations of ourselves and say, you know what, like two years ago, I could run three miles, but that hasn't been the case in two years. So you can't have the expectation that I'm you're going to go out and run three miles tomorrow. Um, and if you've only walked a block in the last even just three weeks, you might just need to start with walking a half of a block. Start yeah. really low. Walk to your mailbox and then walk back inside. You know, that is a win. If you haven't done that and you are doing that, that's that's a win. That is great. And then you increase from there. Don't say, well, I didn't get to, you know, three blocks today. Like, that's okay. Mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes you're not going to have great days. Sometimes you're going to have bad days. But just increasing that activity really slowly. If you walk to your mailbox three days in a row, that's great. If you walk to your mailbox and then you walk down to your neighbor's house the next, you know, week, that's awesome. Even though, right. you know, yourself, your, your prior self, you know, when you were running three miles, wouldn't consider that a win. If you haven't done that in a, at least a you know, a week, that's a win. That's a great thing for you to be doing. Yeah. And so just increasing yeah. that activity, doing those things, making sure that people are in the mindset to understand that just because they didn't achieve what their right. previous expectation may have been, but they have achieved something is yeah. a good, a good positive thing. So patience and self-compassion and also mm -hmm. 
sort of like willingness to be with the discomfort, which again, culturally, we're not big fans of. We're like, oh, what are all the ways that I can immediately get rid of this discomfort and feel better? And recognizing that like sometimes we do like getting through it, um, getting to a better place is going to require us to to be with the discomfort, to build some distress tolerance skills. And that's another thing therapy can be really helpful with. Um, you know, and I, and I, I had, obviously it's all on a case by case basis. Like you said, sometimes depending on what's underlying the pain. Um, so I'll say it in the intro up front, but obviously this is all like within the context of each person checking with their own medical team and knowing what's right for them. But I will say like, this is not a chronic pain example, but to your point, um, I mentioned to you a while ago, it was maybe now almost a couple months ago that I broke my little toe. And I was so nervous about like, I didn't want to do anything to hurt it worse. And it wasn't getting better. And I was like walking funny and, and like, you know, use, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, to try to comp- compensating with, you know, my, my, uh, big toe or my whatever I was walking weird and that was causing more problems. And then I was like, Oh no, I should have gone to the doctor in the beginning. But the best part was when I finally went to the doctor five weeks in, he said, the only thing that you're going to do to hurt this is to stub your toe again. So if you're doing other things, if you're, you know, riding your, your bike or you're exercising or whatever, if it hurts a little, but it's like manageable and then it's fine. And that was so validating and like helpful for me to hear because I was so worried that I was going to make the pain worse, like last longer that I was going to re-injure it. And just having that affirmation of like, no, it's actually okay that it's hurting some, like, sure. If you want to ice it, if you want to take ibuprofen, whatever, great, um, to manage inflammation, but in general, like you're not hurting it just because it's painful. And that was, I needed to hear that. And I can imagine that people with certainly chronic pain might really need to get that sort of like validation and, and understanding. Yeah. And I think, you know, anytime that you have pain or that you, or if you're developing chronic pain, you should always check in with your doctors, make sure that, yeah. you know, there, there aren't any other options that you haven't explored. You know, one thing that I do as a chronic pain doctor are injections or things along those lines, um, which are very specialized treatments. Um, but there should always be a lot of, uh, not necessarily a lot of options, but multiple different treatment options for you, kind of depending on where you are in your path, what you want to do and how you want to proceed, how long it's been affecting you and, um, you know, how much of an interference it is in your life. And I think the biggest thing is that people have to understand that it's not a quick fix. It's it's something you're going to have to work on. It's like any chronic condition. Um, it's like, I like to compare it to like weight gain and weight loss in a way that, you know, mm. you didn't gain you know, however much, let's say it's 50 pounds, you didn't gain 50 pounds overnight, you didn't get to the same pain place that you are, you know, six months later, just overnight, it took time to get to that place. And the same thing, if you're like trying to lose weight, or trying to um, control diabetes, or your blood pressure, it's not going to happen overnight, it's going to be a process. And figuring out the process that works best for you is going to be different for everyone. And 
you should try to find a medical professional who can work with you on that and figuring out what the best options are for you um, and how you want to proceed because there are a lot of options and there's not just one way that's best for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think the last thing I wanted to make sure to ask about is like, this kind of goes back to that idea of the stigma around chronic pain and how it's still in some ways a little bit of a mystery because it's so subjective and, and all of that, that, you know, when people may get some type of chronic pain diagnosis, like um, fibromyalgia or something like being a very much an outsider um, or adjacent to the medical community, like I, my understanding is that a diagnosis like that, you know, is pretty stigmatized and that even a lot of doctors might be like, oh, well, we're just calling it this because they're, they're convinced they're in so much pain and we don't know what else is going on. So we'll just slap this name on it and tell them to go to therapy and, you know, whatever. So um, I'm curious sort of what your take is on, on chronic pain diagnoses like fibromyalgia and like, is there, is there hope for those people to have any improvement or quality of good, better quality of life? Yeah. So like we kind of touched on a little bit, but there, there's a lot that's not understood about chronic pain so mm -hmm. far. Fibromyalgia is one of those, um, diagnoses that we really don't know a lot about. Um, and some people will even say, is fibromyalgia even a legitimate diagnosis? And for those people who have fibromyalgia or have been diagnosed with that, um, it is. So there have been research studies that have shown that people produce different types of chemicals in the places mm. um, in their spinal canal, um, in the places where, you know, the, they have those painful areas. Um, those areas are releasing different chemicals than what would be expected mm. in someone who does not have fibromyalgia. So fibromyalgia is a true diagnosis. It is a real thing. Um, and unfortunately, some people do have this idea that it's just kind of a throw your hands up in the air and we don't know what's going on. And this is just the catch-all we're going to give you. Um, mm -hmm. But it is it is a real thing. Um, but unfortunately, we don't know that much about it. We understand some things like what, what the alterations in some of the chemicals that are released are, but um, we don't really understand why it happens or why certain people develop it um, or – and then the treatments are on kind of the symptoms, same as chronic pain. It's like, unfortunately, we don't have a great way of changing those chemicals that are being released um, by those nerves that shouldn't be released. And we don't have a great way of reversing those connections that those nerves have made that they shouldn't really be making. So um, it's really most of chronic pain is addressing the symptoms, whether we're talking about fibromyalgia mm -hmm. or any other type of chronic pain condition. Um, and it's just trying to figure out how can we optimize your functionality and minimize your pain and keep you doing as much as you want to do and like to do and enjoying life as much as possible. Yeah. Mm. And one thing I'm like, my brain is going to this sci-fi place as someone who does not understand biology at all. I'm like, Ooh, maybe someday can we get like directly in there with the nerves and have them communicate differently with each other? Like, are there things that are in, in terms of the frontier of the medical community? Like, 
Are there guesses at where we might someday be able to kind of intervene with pain? So there are a lot of things that are up and coming. Um, there are, there's a lot of research going into chronic pain and pain conditions in general. And um, we don't have a great way of changing those chemicals yet or changing those interactions that mm -hmm. those nerves make. But there are some that are coming out. And they are a little bit more invasive, um, things called neuromodulation. So there are ways mm -hmm. that we can control the signals that your spinal cord sends and the nerves and how those nerves in your spinal cord connect with other nerves and the signals that mm -hmm. are released, like coming down from your brain to those other nerves. There are ways that we can modify and change that. Um, the, and then, you know, just the ways that people can change that themselves, like the things we talked about, like um, biofeedback, cognitive behavioral therapy, you yourself can change some of those interactions that you, you have going on. We just can't see it. Um, mm -hmm. And then there are things that, you know, there are different types of procedures or things along those lines that can modify how those nerves are connecting with other nerves um, or the signals that they're able to send. Um, some of the medications are specifically geared towards acting on specific receptors or acting on specific um, neurotransmitters, which are the chemicals that are released by the nerves, um, changing those signals. But we just don't have really targeted ways of doing it other than neuromodulation, which is a little bit more invasive and um, mm -hmm. not necessarily a treatment for most people at this yeah, time. Like. I know we won't be here in a hundred years, but I'll be very curious, like what the pain field will look like then. Yeah. I think, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting stuff coming out in the next um, 20, 30 years, 50 years, our lifetime, um, cool. you know, even with the advent of AI and stuff, there mm -hmm. could potentially be things with AI that target different areas of your brain or activate certain things in your brain to, to help treat pain or other conditions that you know we really don't know how to treat right now. I think there's a lot mm -hmm. on the horizon that could potentially be out there for the near future. Cool. Okay. Last question. If someone is listening to this and they are someone who struggles with chronic pain and they just feel defeated, like maybe they haven't had good experiences with medical providers um, or they feel stigmatized or they just are tired of being in pain all the time. Like, are there any just words of encouragement that you would want to offer? Um, I think finding someone who you can work with and who has um, a mindset that is there to help you and offers you multiple options is really, really important. Um, find mm -hmm. a friend who, who either has seen someone, ask your doctors, ask your therapist, ask your massage therapist, your chiropractors, if there is someone that they know that, you know, um, offers more than what you've maybe experienced in the past. Um, all doctors are very different, um, just like all therapists and different um, therapists and massage therapists and all of those different things, physical trainers, they can all be very, very different. So finding someone who you can trust and work with is really important. So I think finding that person who you, who you feel understands you and is willing to work with you is really important. Um, staying in an environment where you don't feel heard or understood or that they're on the same page as you is not going to do you any, any good in the long run. So asking your friends, family, finding, searching and finding someone who 
can offer you treatment options is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, is there anything, I know you don't have like your own personal website because you work for an organization, but is there any, any resources you would want to point us to um, if people are wanting to learn more or about you or any of that? Um, let me get you some resources that I will have you, you can post in um, yes. a few different resources that I like for like sleep and um, awesome. cognitive behavioral kind of uh, things that you can do on your own, um, YouTube videos that you can watch to help with with uh, movement and exercise, Cool. Um, yoga stuff. Um, I have a whole bunch of resources that I can get to you and you can post them online. Yay. We'll put those in the show notes. Yeah. Awesome. This has been so much fun. Oh my gosh. It's so great to connect with you in this way. You're, you have so much wisdom and experience to share. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. Thank you. This was really fun. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it, that would mean so much to me. For show notes, head over to GaiaCenter.co and follow us on Instagram at the Gaia Center and at Val K Martin, V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. And if you're into animal stuff and delicious vegan food, be sure to check out my other podcast, Vegan and Vibrant. See you next time.